Well, it was beautiful in that it, it revealed a dimension of consciousness that I had seeked to find. Um, but then it didn't stop <laughs> developing. We're not designed to well, operate that way. It's too much information. This was like something that for, for years I was in this, I call it existential paralysis of being like, okay, I'm going to step outside and, and just like there's an individual or multiple individuals in each of one of those with their flashlight of consciousness and their whole perception and life story and script of the world. And then there's electrical wires inside those houses, but then there's electricity and then we discovered electricity and now it's been created into this weird grid and harnessed and flows in through the, the walls of these things and through wires that operates these other things that are full of all these tiny little components. And I just felt a gust of wind go by and that's a bunch of oxygen that's going by that when I breathe that in, 300,000 molecules of, of oxygen will go into my lungs and that's going to put oxygen into my blood, which will get passed through my heart and then, through, and then that blood will be cleaned through my kidneys. And I'll go back through. And then now, as I'm thinking about this, the light is reflecting off of this thing and from the sun that's 98 million miles away. And then that light. So just like a bombardment of information at all times. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and you were just listening to Corey Allen, meditation teacher, author, podcast host, musician, and today's featured founder. Corey's story begins in Austin, Texas. It's this living, breathing organism. And with a choice to live a markedly different life from that of his gun-toting Republican, cynical and distrustful father, he tells us about his moment of awakening and teaches me that enlightenment can happen anywhere, even in a urinal. And this is what I call the, the unbearable lightness of peeing. He speaks about his relationships with his mom, with organized religion, with drugs, with Nietzsche, and death metal. This vibration that's moving out of the speakers that, I, that I'm feeling, and that is where I'll find my resonance in the world. He talks about his audio mastering company, Altered Ear, and his universal truth-giving podcast, The Astral Hustle. Telling Corey's story is hard. Because I feel like I'm trying to cram the weight of the entire universe and all its intricacies and wisdom into a peanut. But let's delve into it anyway and start in 1980s Austin. Growing up in Austin is is interesting in the sense that it's always been an emerging city in the sense that like the new central mixture between Los Angeles and New York is now in the center of the country and it's just this weird combination of tech and culture and all the while it's it's insulated by an extremely conservative surrounding of texas yet it is like kind of the piece of coal of open-minded creativity that's being crushed into a diamond austin is a cultural island a liberal hub in the center of conservative texas all descriptions that apply to Corey and his life's work his mindfulness practice and abstract philosophy Corey's mindset evokes Austin's constantly emergent quality. Juxtapose that and the city of Austin with the picture of his father, an almost comical stereotype of Texan masculinity. It seems that Corey's place in his family also mirrored the city's unique place in the Republican South. As far as my father goes, he was that sort of classic, like, 90s, Dallas Republican type of look. 
the polo shirt, belly, you know, um, tucked into some jeans that are kind of pulled up. He just had a gun room in his house, a safe full of guns, a room full of ammunition. Um, and he always carried at least one gun on him, but usually a few. He always carried a, either a, a 50 caliber Desert Eagle in his uh, black Suburban or a Magnum. I think it was a 44 with an 8-inch barrel. Being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off. Kind of the dirty, hairy-looking gun. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? And yeah, I mean, he that was a big part of his identity and, and who he was. And, you know, was, I think it's a little twofold in that he lived with a lot of, from my understanding, a lot of fear and anxiety and a lot of stress because he was brought up in this, you know, and he was conditioned to see life in this cutthroat kind of businessman type of approach where like the whole professional life is this ecosystem of leverage and screwing someone over like immaculately where you totally just crush their whole life you know for example Someone that he wanted to fire because they pissed him off or like challenged his authority or something like that. He would tell them like, hey, why don't you, you've been really working hard. Why don't you go on vacation? And he'd, they'd be like, oh, okay, cool. And then he would have their office like cleared out and have all of their stuff put into storage somewhere. And then just have like a key laying in the middle of the floor. You know, so whenever they got back from vacation, they would go in there and be like, where's everything in my office? He was like... <laughs> That's the key to the storage you know, shed where it all is being stored right now and you're fired and ha ha ha. And just like really relishing the joy of their suffering in that moment. And he had a dark sense of humor. He was really funny, but like completely ruthless with his humor. Um, not really emotionally available as far as I could ever tell. Uh, he very much did not take any shit whatsoever. I think often strong personalities like Corey's father are magnetic. And not in the sense that you may usually hear that word. I mean in the sense that if you innately have those qualities, you are attracted. But if you don't, and in this case, if your core is one of kindness and love, you are repelled away. Corey saw intense fear in his father and was repelled. I remember him saying that he had a gun, always carried guns, because he never knew who was going to be waiting around the corner whenever he walked around the corner. And I remember thinking, like, that's a, what a what a terrible, like, fear-filled way to experience the world. And I remember thinking, like, well, I would rather live a life of kindness and equanimity where I would be excited to see who would be standing around the corner and be like, you know, stoked to see whoever was there or be out in public looking forward to running into people who I've crossed paths with before as opposed to being prepared to fight them, you know? And, and it just made me really just early on see the what the delight and the suffering of others leads to. And it didn't look good to me. I want to repeat that last sentence. It made me see what the delight in suffering of others leads to. Corey says, it didn't look good to me. His father's actions weren't good, but those actions weren't his father. 
They weren't his essence, and Corey was beginning to see a separation. The difference between being and doing. A more empathetic way to view humanity. I'm going to let Eckhart Tolle talk for a second. The essence of this teaching is not doing, but being. There are these two dimensions. Every human being embodies the human level, which involves doing and thinking and experiencing and acquiring and gaining and so on. And every human being also embodies the deeper dimension of being. And that's why you are a human being. In the space between being and doing, Corey found empathy, understanding, and curiosity. He didn't see his father as evil, he just saw him as misguided. Corey acknowledged that his father was both a product and an agent of his environment, perpetuating tropes of masculinity like aggression and emotional distance because he himself felt the social pressures of what it meant to be a man of the South. Corey had to believe there was another way to live. That his father was wrong to believe that you can only be strong when you make others feel weak. There was another lens through which to view reality. In fact, there was no single truth, but an infinite number of truths. This was meta-awareness. Yeah, well, just what meta-awareness means in general is, is having the, the sense of awareness about you being a content of the world as opposed to the other way around as to the world being this content of your mind where it's like okay everything I experience is in my brain it's like no you're in the ecosystem of the universe and so meta-awareness is being able to see that big picture this bird's eye view of your own existence it's a really valuable uh, way to step out and step back from your ego and your egoic behavior a bit because you realize like, oh, I'm just, my, you know, myself, capital S self, is this game on the chessboard. My mom and brother and I had gone vacationing at the beach a little bit. We are hanging out in the room and my brother got sunburned and so he was staying back and my, my mom, we needed to go somewhere and get something distinctly remembered as we were driving away like looking back at the hotel and thinking how weird it was that he was in there like laying in bed and he was feeling the the feeling tones in in his consciousness of suffering of his skin and the discomfort and the whole sensation of being in a room alone and that was what his experience of reality was at that moment and that my experience was sitting in this car moving away from this building and that I was experiencing the, you know, the mindfulness and awareness of my body being in that car and the awareness of my mind looking out towards him and then realizing that both of those things were happening at the same time. Recognizing the concept just in its rawest form of like, oh wow, each of our human awarenesses are happening in this non-local subjective way where we're all experiencing these different viewpoints of reality and they're happening all at once. Corey's meta-awareness epiphany was sparked by something intensely ordinary, a bad sunburn. Often, the divine is seen in the simplest forms, and Corey saw how the intricate weaving of individual realities creates a rich tapestry of intermingling consciousnesses. 
This tapestry is easy to mistake as a singular entity. But pull on a thread hard enough, and suddenly you unravel the tapestry of realism, exposing its different intermingling threads. His brother's sunburn, a car ride, his father's fear, or Texas's seemingly impermeable fabric of religion. He now had the perspective to analyze all this and more. How did you view religion? Because it was somewhat a part of your life. Texas, as you said, is pretty, there's a foundation of religiosity and a lot of things, unfortunately, even in the state government and things like that. You would not only get the glory, but that you would give us insight into your heart. And especially in the 80s, you know, I was born in 1982. So especially in the early 80s, it was still very much like a lot of people. That was just what you did. You know, it was your some form of of Christian. And my father wasn't religious at all. He clearly never gave you know, two shits about anything. And then my mom, she pushed for it a little bit more because she would go to church out of more fear than anything else. Therefore, the word fire is included in this place called hell. And would use it as a as a way to kind of validate and feel a part of something you know else and validate some behaviors and ways of thinking. Like Corey's father, his mother lived in fear and sought comfort and safety. While his father turned to weaponry and aggression in a misguided way to find that safety, his mother turned to religion. This made sense in deeply religious Texas, where Christianity is embedded into the foundations of government and society, but how much sense did it actually make? Corey's questions were met with resistance, resistance that only increased his thirst for knowledge. From early on, I felt uh, something fishy about Christianity and organized religion. I remember sitting in you know church wherever we would go whenever I was younger, and I used to think like they're saying all of these things, almost like oddly like mystical things about what believing in God or their God will do to you and for you and X, Y, and Z. And I remember thinking like, all right, well let's let's test this out a little bit <laughs> i would just look for these confirmations or you know do various things and pray about them uh looking for confirmations and so forth and they just never came you know and uh i just immediately started sniffing the contradictions and the kind of the just general facsimiles of the opportunism that i was observing and witnessing and so it made it to where it was challenging because the way that my mom dealt with any misalignment with Christianity uh, was intense aggression and trying to make you feel scared and being very angry at you. So it was anger. (laughs) It's a way to try and just, from a animalistic level, try and control and snuff out any questioning because you try and scare someone enough into becoming submissive it was very clear to me that I, it was not open for discussion. And I thought, okay, well, I don't want to be yelled at and I don't want to feel more anxiety and more fear and just worry. So I might as well just never talk about it. And that was how a lot of things in uh, my childhood were. It was just like, if there's anything that was uncomfortable for anybody, you know, for my mom, then it was just met with aggression and 
throwing up a big wall and then often blaming my, my brother or I for something. Corey's insatiable appetite for truth drove a wedge between him and the people in his life. He was hungry for new ideas and increasingly unwilling to accept beliefs that were presented to him as absolutes. He had stumbled upon one of the core questions of Western philosophy. What is truth? As well as a foundational principle of Buddhism, anatta, the doctrine of non-self that renounces the idea of the unchanging, permanent self. And we'll come back to these ideas in a second, but his questioning was not without consequences. He was pulling the loose threads of control that both his mother and father had woven into the delusions of reality. And in doing so, he also unraveled the connection he had with his parents. And so he sought understanding elsewhere. Young and inspired, he was carving his own path, feeling both confident and frustrated. A pioneer feeling both lonely and inspired. No wonder he turned to music, to death metal, and to hip-hop. The early introductions into music was that my, you know, everyone in my family was really into music. It always played an important role. As a kid, you know, as like I had a stereo and it very much was like my lifeline. It was the thing that I could almost become attached to because it was trustable and it was saying something pure. Say that you turned on an album really loud in your house. Even like Metallica, like the early Metallica records as a kid. But then you put in soundproof headphones. Put your hands and just kind of stood in front of the stereo and you feel the waves of vibration coming out. That's sort of the essence of what I was attaching myself to at that age, because it was like, here's something that's coming out that, and I can find the right frequency of this vibration that's moving out of the speakers that, I, that I'm feeling. And that is where I'll find my resonance in the world, because most people look for resonance in dialogue and emotions, and they say, oh, I'm feeling sad. I'll talk to someone else about them feeling sad, and we'll connect, and we'll feel a resonance. Me not having that, I found it in sound. And I have all this energy, like a just immense amount of energy coming into me. And the chaos of those vibrations were really liberating to me because it was how I felt inside. So close, and same thing with the emergence of hip-hop. The attitude and the performative nature of the extreme ego in hip hop. I was a fiend before I became a teen. I melted my I am the like every MC thinks they're the baddest motherfucker ever to live. And they then you they need to in order to to be a great MC, which is so interesting to me as an art form. And then there's a real of course this fluidity and smoothness to the approach and almost the sense of humor about it all as well. And that really resonated with me because I was trying to feel like feeling disorganized. I was looking for a way to embody and absorb some of that self-belief and confidence. And I always really liked just the fluidity and kind of rhythm of 
that music it really felt like to me it was the really the rhythm of like existence the mic is a drain no volcanoes erupting rhymes overflowing gradually growing everything is written in the cold so he had all these thoughts and feelings but didn't quite have the language to express them music was an outlet and in some ways its own language but he needed a more precise language to untangle the knots of his soul he'd soon find that language in philosophy. I overheard this conversation randomly where someone was talking about if they could have dinner with, I think they said four people, living or dead, who would they have dinner with? And I remember they, the names, are, the two I remember, where they said Nietzsche and Jesus, and then I don't remember who else. But I remember just hearing that name, Nietzsche, and thinking, oh, that's an interesting sounding name. And so then one day I was going through a bookstore and I just saw that name on the spine of a book. No one in my family ever read. And so saw this book and I remember reading it and going like, wait a second, this is how I think. The way my mind formulates thoughts. And it was this huge revelation to me. It's the delivery of the ideas in the, in the way of thinking. So my brain naturally will find connecting nodes and points in disparate elements of that huge river of abstract conceptualization and pull them together through their connections into one expressible idea. Corey was becoming adept at picking seemingly disparate ideas from the haze and seeing connection. And in this, he was distancing himself even further from his family and from other 14-year-olds who were not tackling such complex ideas. In differentiating his thoughts from those of his parents and the people around him, Corey was beginning to fulfill Nietzsche's goal for humanity, where people construct individual ideas unconstrained by traditional modes of thought such as organized religion. He no longer fought the current. He moved with the river of knowledge and found philosophy illuminating and broadening. He began dissecting and integrating these ideas with writing. Anyway, so I was just writing a lot and I would, uh, everything had to be hidden in my life because, uh, uh, you know, my, my mom would just she would basically just go through our rooms every couple of days. There's no privacy, no hint of having anything that was yours or, or that, that could be private. And so I would try and hide these things because I knew that they could lead to just a lot of conflict. One day I came home and, and my mom was like, do you want to go to the mall to buy some clothes? And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. We got in the car and she just drove me to this, essentially like a mental hospital, like an inpatient mental hospital program. And I was like, what the fuck is this? We go in there and she's like, this is a psychiatrist. And basically just all these things that she'd gone through in my closet and my dresser, you know, and in between the mattresses and just found every personal effect that I was scared to share and turned them over to this psychiatrist. And he was looking at them and, was like, I think the best path forward is an instant inpatient program. Like, right of a movie, where it's like, here's your room, you go stay in this room with no locks, there's no 
clocks anywhere. Like the rooms don't have any windows that you can see out of, so you never know if it's day or night. Uh, they force you at this little window to like take pills and then look in your mouth to make sure you swallow them. Even though I always put them like in between my cheek and my gum and then would go spit them out in the toilet afterwards. Because even as a 14 year old, I was like, this doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense to change the brain chemistry of a brain that's in development. How did you feel? Yeah, it's extremely traumatic. I mean, it's like very shocking and, and, and confusing in that like I the whole time I'm like, I feel fine. <laughs> like, I, like, of course, I recognize like, yeah, I'm a teenager. I'm angry. I've, I'm depressed and I feel like I'm in a weird situation. But like, I'm not in any way out of control. So yeah, it was not a good, not a good situation. But uh, I was only fortunate; I was only in there for a couple of weeks because I was just like, you know, I, the, even the, the the doctors that were in there were like, "You don't, you're fine." I don't know why, you know, I don't know what the what the deal is. Um, but coming out of that, how did you change your perception of yourself and your relationship with your mom? The relationship with my, my mom, of course, that's sort of one of those wounds that could never heal. It can only turn to scar tissue. But it really made made it where I was like, that was just one link in the chain of trust that, that I knew could never be rebuilt. The cold reality of Corey's maternal relationship had cemented itself. His entire life, Corey strayed from the mindset of his family. He had thought differently. Often difference is otherized and persecuted. And what his mom didn't understand, she oppressed. She was fighting to keep control of how Corey thought, to control how he acted, but she was fighting a losing battle. In the chasm that opened between them, Corey felt an emotional loss that could not be filled with death metal or hip hop or Nietzsche or Jesus. So he filled the space with something else, something that didn't just fill it, but changed what this space could mean. What was your opinion on on drugs in high school? I thought they were great. My mom took a lot of pills growing up, so I was like, okay, well, pills are fine. Valiums, Vicodins, those are all fine. Um, because for whatever reason to me, even taking like Vicodins and Valiums, it actually made my mind really clear and crisp. So it seems like you had like a friendly relationship with drugs, but it wasn't like drugs are bad. Well, not for not to me. I mean, my my family all said drugs are bad. Somewhere around there, eighteen or nineteen, I was uh, taking a bunch of acid with some friends, and I never had any bad experience. I just basically the only thing that was painful was my cheeks from laughing so much for so long. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I remember we were just hanging out and there was a poster a friend had of a horsehead nebula, which is a giant, like, gaseous star that's very colorful. And I remember looking at it and pointing out to my friends, and I'm like, guys, look, 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 this looks like Trevor the, the Purple Wig. And we were just, like, cracking up. And then hour later, I'd go back in there and I was like, you know, like, this is like an alligator wearing a hat made out of meat or whatever. You know, and we were laughing about it. 
it hit me that up until that moment, I had always only seen that poster as a, as a gaseous star. But then after revisiting it multiple times of the course of a deeply, you know, in a deeply psychedelic state of mind that I was seeing multiple things clearly kind of during and afterwards, I realized, like, oh, wow, that is you know, truly the opening the doors of perception and the sense that everything that we perceive, it's a subjective reading of the world outside of our skin. I feel like this gave like almost evidence of the things that you were thinking when you were in that hotel with your brother. Like, oh, not only can other people have like different points of view and different perspective, but I can I can like experience how differently I can view the world and thus like that can be maybe extrapolated to others. Absolutely. That was sort of the initial like childlike understanding of that and then what I'm describing now was the more like entering into adulthood understanding of that idea. Corey was experiencing more than a shift in brain chemistry. He was experiencing revelation. Seeing a purple wig Jabba and a meat hat wearing alligator while on acid could be dismissed as the trivial musings of a teenager on drugs, but for Corey it was an expansion of the sunburn epiphany he had as a child. Drugs present these different lenses from which we can view the world in a new light. And for Corey, that aided in physically experiencing metaconsciousness and metathought. I think these experiences lent a deeper understanding of the questions he'd been asking himself for years. How do we perceive the world? What is knowledge? Are experiences subjective? Corey was determined to find some answers. He started to read with more focus and intensity. We'll be right back after this break. Adrian and I were trying to contact some people that could talk to us about voting, but literally, I don't know, how did it turn out, Adrian? <laughs> literally every single office seems like they're closed right now. Also because it is 5 p.m. Yeah, because we kind of struck out, we're going to try literally <laughs> just typing in random numbers into the phone and just seeing if they voted. Do people still answer their phones? Hello, uh, who, who am I speaking to? Hello? Hello, uh, who am I speaking to? You're speaking to me. Yeah. Uh, I don't think... I was just wondering, uh, have you voted? Dang, bro. Hey, uh, who am I speaking with? Uh, Tia. Tia, have you voted? Um, thanks for calling. What? Uh-huh. Finding founders. Ah, oh, getting people to vote is hard. I wish it was easy as sharing a podcast. <laughs> wait, wait, could that just be our ad? And also, you can share our podcast by tagging Finding Founders Podcast and posting it to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to go ahead and vote on November 3rd. And also, subscribe to Finding Founders and leave us five stars. I would go and get all these, the most challenging books I could find. And even if it took me 10 minutes a page to just read through and reread sentences until I understood them, I would just work through them. Hence the not sleeping and staying, you know, staying up all night. 
as I became really interested in Robert Anton Wilson, who was a writer and philosopher from the 1970s and 80s. And plowing through this book over and over, uh, this book from the 30s on semantics was so valuable and so penetrating to my brain. And with each page in that book, I could just feel my brain like shifting and changing. And I would feel like stoned after I was done reading it. And I realized at some point, I was like, oh, like I can literally feel my consciousness like expanding. And like that feeling of stonedness is the intoxication of the horizon of my mind being pushed further off into the distance. So one of the refrains that Robert Anton Wilson used was, there was a saying, non-simultaneous interactive apprehended processing. This notion of the enlightenment around your subjective experience. And just to break that out a little bit, so non-simultaneous points to the fact that everything in life is happening all at once. So like my brother in the hotel while I'm away driving in a car, the flashlight of our awareness that I talked about earlier is stuck in this local area where our body is. But objective reality is happening everywhere all at once. So it's non, we are non-simultaneously in that we can only perceive this little area of reality in life that is right around our body at any given moment. Yet the world continues to operate in the blindness of our consciousness. And then processing is that then we are considering and reflecting on how we're interacting with reality. And that is then influencing our next decision making. And this is what I call the, the unbearable lightness of peeing. went into a bathroom to go to the urinal and I was just sort of muttering that and then as I started going to the bathroom it was just this awakening moment of the four walls of the movie set kind of fell down and fell apart and there was like the, the black area behind it and the stage lights became apparent and not only did I have the, the memory of those concepts, but I began to see my own reality in a multidimensional way. When, when you had that, was it, what were the emotions surrounding that realization and that perception change? Excitement. It's a feeling of liberation. Not of the heart, but of the mind. I've had this extreme curiosity to gain perspective on my own experience but beyond that there was just this fearless drive to understand the philosophy of mind and just the scope of reality and consciousness as deeply as possible Corey has an insatiable thirst for knowledge this incessant drive to understand and expand his consciousness Having taken a class on philosophy of the mind, I assure you that topics like subjective experience, the mind-body problem, and dualism are very abstract. But Corey didn't shy away from difficulty. He reveled in it. And in this urinal revelation, he had opened his Pandora's box. I think he had opened the power of now. The power of viewing your thoughts as an observer and not attaching an identity to those thoughts. 
I'm reading a book on this right now, and I think there are parallels between this book, The Power of Now, and Corey's story. So I'll turn over some of the explanation to Eckhart Tolle. Ultimately, the now is the presence, and the presence is you. You are the now. But the you that is an intrinsic part of universal power itself, universal consciousness itself, the one consciousness that underlies all phenomena, the one consciousness of... Corey was watching the thinker, observing his consciousness in such a way that a higher level of consciousness was activated. He was living in the now, and he couldn't unlearn these ideas. He couldn't go back. All he could do was move forward. Although he had been cultivating his mind and structuring his consciousness as he saw fit, he couldn't control everything in his life. I want to just talk about um, your dad. He didn't really call me ever or my brother ever, maybe once a year or something like that. We rarely got any gifts for birthday or Christmas. Not that that's important per se, but... The, the, the point of it is that we're never anticipating anything. Whenever I was 20, sitting there at home and the phone rang and I saw on the, the who was calling, it was from his house. And I was like, oh, whoa, this is exciting. I never would have expected a call before, a couple of days before Christmas. And uh, it was his wife um, telling me that he basically just had this uh, emergency event, health event, and was in the hospital and that my brother and I should come up there immediately, so we dropped everything uh, and went up there. So he went to the hospital and so they said, we need to do emergency open heart surgery on you. So they did that. And then after that, he went into a coma because he just didn't recover from the, the open-heart surgery. His kidneys shut down, his liver started failing, and by the time that, that we even arrived, he was really swollen with fluid and his eyes were like half hanging open. It was actually really strange in that he looked like a giant baby. It was a really rough period in, in that we he was in the ICU and they kept trying to, like, oh, we think he's going to be all right. And then they come out and say, no, he's not going to be all right. And they say, oh, he's going to be all right. And they say, oh, he's not going to be all right. Several days of that, and eventually, uh, yeah, on Christmas Day, uh, they said that you know he had an issue where his like pulse dropped, and they had to do uh, CPR on him, and it broke free the blood clots that were in his heart, and they went into his bloodstream and went to his brain, gave him brain damage, and they were like, even if he could recover, he would probably be like part vegetative. my dad you know and that he was very much you know this is a guy that took out a 50 caliber gun and stuck it down my brother's friend's throat and choked him with it basically threatened him to 
to not come around and influence his son in a negative way again. You know, this is part a dimension of who you're dealing with. He would not want to live in a vegetative state. Then it just sort of continued to go downhill very rapidly. On Christmas, we had to sign the papers for them to basically just take him off life support. Seeing his father in that vegetative state was not the Christmas present he was expecting. On top of that, Corey's relationship with his father was complex. His father was absent, and they shared this vastly different approach to life. And it seemed the only thing they had in common was blood. But his father was family. Far from perfect, but it's obvious that deep down, he cared for Corey on some level, maybe in his own way. I mean, he put a gun down to a boy's throat to defend his son's honor. And it sounds grotesque, but that was Corey's father for you. A macho, gun-carrying, Tarantino-esque character. But his father's passing would take him down another rabbit hole. Into the philosophical world of mortality. Whenever I was a teenager, one of my best friends died from accidentally overdosing on uh, codeine in Everclear. So... Having him die and having my father die a few years after that and a couple other friends dying from drug-related things, it really crystallized our impermanence. That in combination with a lot of energy and inspiration to want to make things happen and not wanting to wait around for kind of the approval of other people uh, ultimately is how this the label started. friend Mike, uh, we were both in the metal scene together way back in the day, working on music on my computer from, you know, I would get off, I worked in a bookstore whenever I was like 21, 22, and I would just go home at like five and just sit there and work. And I had like this keyboard, uh, like a computer keyboard with a padded hand rest. And I would just like work and work until like my body would start like forcing itself to go to sleep. And I would just rest my forehead on that padded part and continue working without even looking until I just like lost consciousness. And I would like wake up like an hour later and be like, oh God, I got to go to work. And I would like go go to the bookstore and I would literally like sit down for one minute in the middle of the floor at a time and just like sleep for one minute and then like get up and start moving again. Uh, anyway, and I was drinking a lot. Why were you drinking so much? Well, it's confusing numbness for peace, really. Just you know, a lot of unresolved pain and suffering. And, and also this, that was leading into a real struggle with my just existential awareness. And alcohol was a great way to numb my awareness of infinity but like you said it was a beautiful thing when you had that moment when you were peeing and you had the set fall why did it turn into something that you were trying to avoid well it was beautiful in that it it revealed a dimension of consciousness that i had seeked to find um but then it didn't stop (laughs) developing (laughs) 
<laughs> I didn't anticipate that element of it. Uh, it continued getting more detailed and, and larger and larger and larger and more nuanced over the course of almost 10 years. Why was like a more nuanced, bigger view of your consciousness and the universe unbearable? Because we're not designed to operate that way. It's too much information. It's too much. It's it's self-awareness rooted in the mind instead of in the heart to where if you wake up, this was like something that for, for years I was in this, I call it existential paralysis of being like, okay, I'm going to step outside and, and just like, and being like, okay, well, there's every, there's like every single blade of grass and moving through those blades of grass, there's liquid and fluid. And then there's all these like insects and microbes in the soil. There are like tons of microbes and there's all these trees and these trees have been here forever and they all are responding to the sunlight and the leaves are, are changing right now. Each individual leaf is changing and on those trees are other insects and birds and so forth. And then there's this house across the street and all these other houses and there's, all, there's an individual or multiple individuals in each of one of those with their flashlight of consciousness and their whole perception and life story and script of the world. And then there's electrical wires inside those houses, but then there's electricity and then we discovered electricity. And now it's been created into this weird grid and harnessed and flows in through the, the walls of these things and through wires that operates these other things that are full of all these tiny little components. And I just felt a gust of wind go by and that's a bunch of oxygen that's moving by that when I breathe that in, 300,000 molecules of, of oxygen will go into my lungs and that's going to put oxygen into my blood, which will get passed through my heart and then, through, and then that blood will be cleaned through my kidneys. And I'll go back through. And then now, as I'm thinking about this, the light is reflecting off of this thing and from the sun that's 98 million miles away. And then that light. So just like a bombardment of information, like at all times. Exactly. So getting into a conversation, it was like, okay, well, here's, you know, a bazillion entry points and avenues and pieces of connective tissue. And I have to like try and wrestle as many of those down into something that can be spoken. That's makes sense and is linear enough to have like a normal human interaction. Um, and so drinking helped really like calm that down because it, I think it just like low slowed my, like the brain function enough to where it was like, okay, I can just mellow out on this one or two, rivers of thought and not get caught swept away in this kind of mania of of thinking you know everything was happening too fast having his friend pass away from a drug overdose seeing his father comatose that's hard on anyone's psyche but Corey couldn't give himself time to mourn he needed to get to work to outrun his own mortality However, being acutely aware of his own significance, being a speck in the fabric of existence while juggling a million different thoughts simultaneously is exhausting to the point where he needed to resort to alcohol to numb his thoughts. And this only postponed the inevitable. He would have to face his demons eventually. So he turned to books once more to search for a more permanent solution. How did you end up like channeling those into more productive ways one of the most important practitional elements of my life has been meditation and that's something that i started whenever i was a teenager (music) 
at the time in the, in the 90s, you know, there wasn't a, a bunch of YouTube videos and guided meditations around. It was like, here's a weird old dusty book on on meditation, which even what it wasn't westernized the way it is now. It was something more eccentric and esoteric and almost a little like dangerous, you know, back then. I remember just lying down on my bed and trying like some of these the very simple something that's like written in the Pali canon of like when I breathe in I know that I'm breathing in when I breathe out I know that I'm breathing out but just trying that and that really helped create some internal space for me where I was able to become more aware of why I was living so reflectively and so and so reactively to my life just as this kind of automated to my responses to my traumas and defensiveness around everything in my environment and so that was the entry point to meditation for me the the path of constructiveness comes from where you realize that meaning doesn't exist in life exists in your life through what you create so choosing to walk the path of compassion and kindness and uh, mindful awareness the meaning of life that is an intricate personal puzzle that few have solved but through meditation Corey was able to get one step closer to finding his meaning his purpose As a teenager, he had few outlets for his angst. He had no role model to show him how to deal with anxiety. His mom committed him to a psychiatric ward the moment that she smelt his divergent mindset. He was left to use drugs and alcohol to quell his racing mind. But meditation gave him a way to channel his angst and anxiety into a productive channel. It gave him the freedom to reflect, to face his buried emotions and traumas. And having coped with his personal issues, Corey was ready to focus on his more entrepreneurial goals. I knew that I just didn't want to work for anyone else. And I sat down and I thought, what is the way that I could make the most amount of money in the smallest amount of time and be completely free? Because the one thing that really always bothered me and didn't like wasn't incongruent with my way of seeing life was like working for some company or even for some other human telling me that I have to be somewhere at 10 a.m. and I can't leave until 7 p.m. every day. Like, this doesn't doesn't make it. That's preposterous, you know? So I was always producing music at that time, just my own, and I would kind of help people, friends with theirs. And they'd be like, your sound's really good. Can you do that to mine and, like, help me, you know, help my music sound better? But, yeah, sure. So I'd do it just for fun. And then more and more people started asking, like, hey, can you help me do this? And I'll give you 20 bucks. And I think, oh, cool, man, make 20 bucks. And someone said, oh, can you, you know, if you do my whole album, I'll give you 100 bucks. And at the time, I was like, wow, 100 bucks? That's amazing. Okay. And because my friend Mike and I, we were like, I don't want to just send my, because, you know, when you're a musician, you try and send your demo to, you know, 20 different labels, and you never hear anything. And so you're like, okay, well... How do I get my music out there? And we were like, why are we trying to get some stranger to woo us? Why don't we do it and we'll build our own foundation and release whatever we want, however we want, and then we can do whatever. And so that was why we started the label. 
so that was really the beginning of the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial aspect of things of realizing like, oh, right, with enough vision and clarity and effort, you can do whatever you want on your own terms. That was how all these people started coming to me and then started asking me, hey, can you help me produce my record? And, and then I kind of started realizing like, oh, right, well, I can do this again. And like, I'm putting so much effort into this label. What if I put all that effort into, my, into this music production company? I slowed down doing the label and really turned up putting real effort into doing the, the, the music production company. And then that took off. Uh, way faster than I realized. Like, I started, like, getting projects quickly. Corey had three pillars of entrepreneurship. Vision, clarity, and effort. But more importantly, he had a desire for freedom. The freedom to control his own destiny. He has always been an independent thinker. Even when his community was blindly religious, he questioned. He rebelled against the system. But building his own music production company wasn't merely an act of defiance. It was a declaration of creative and economic independence. And his entrepreneurial streak was not going to stop there. Probably six or seven years ago, I met a guy named Aubrey, and he was starting his podcast. And so he was trying to figure out how to set up his gear, and we got connected because he knew I was an audio guy, and I set up his podcast gear. And then we were like, okay, well, let's test the gear. And it was the first time we ever met. We just started talking, and then at the end, we were like, wow, this is an awesome podcast. Oh, shit, everyone. We just started a podcast. We're here with my man. The Golden Eagle. Corey Allen, for those of you who don't um, So then as his popularity grew and his podcast grew, I would go on the show all the time. His followers would then start hitting me up online and be like, dude, you got to start your own podcast. And I remember thinking like, all right, well, that'd be fun. And so I really started it just for fun because I thought, well, I know cool people and interesting people and be fun to just do solo kind of ramblings or have interesting conversations recorded and share them with others. And so I started doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. Give us your four popcorns. Yeah, yeah, four popcorns. But, uh, right, Spencer, Mike's. hey, thanks for coming. No problem, Corey. Joining me in the musician's studio. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting about Corey's podcast is its organic inception. It wasn't like he drew out a business model and created a list of plausible podcast ideas. He just wanted to have meaningful conversations. When you listen to Corey, it's like you were just talking to a friend who also happens to be a spiritual guru. It's like he's breaking down the complexities of the mind and translating them into a digestible conversation. And that type of talent doesn't go unrecognized. And so uh, it grew quickly. And then from there, it just continued to grow and grow and grow. And I've just been able to speak with you know almost every Buddhist teacher and teacher in meditation and mindfulness and philosophers and authors and musicians and scientists and neuroscientists and psych- psychologists and all these people, you know, all these themes I talked about as a kid and as a teenager that were really fascinating to me. 
I had another huge hit whenever uh, the show was included in the front page of the New York Times Sunday Review section a few years ago. And that was a another real big blast of awareness from the show. And then things kind of changed again. Everything kind of went up a notch. And that's when the audience increased again and advertisers started really coming. And then as the audience began growing, it became very clarifying for me in how what I said affected other people. I needed to really be much more precise with what I was saying and to be more mindful about what topics and what things I talked about and how I talked about those things to convey with extreme clarity and delicate care in my articulation about these things that are inherently rather nuanced and and prone to misinterpretation. Now it's interesting because now it's at a place where I feel like it's kind of its own thing and I'm just sort of there to facilitate its growth. Like you're just kind of gardening at this point. Yeah. Like I just kind of got out of the way of it now. Corey is tending to this podcast that has grown to influence millions. It's taken on a life of its own and now caring for this life has become a great responsibility. Corey feels an obligation to teach his listeners, guide them on their spiritual journeys. He wasn't just grabbing a cup of coffee with a friend and talking about the complexities of our human consciousness anymore. He was speaking to thousands of listeners and interviewing industry leaders. Now his words mattered. They impacted lives. From the beginning, Corey states that he wanted to be a pillar of kindness and joy. He wants to live his life impacting people for the better. And it's safe to say he's accomplished his goal. What advice would you give to someone who wants to cultivate a better understanding of their place in the universe? One book that I tend to recommend to people that want to kind of dig a bit deeper and just get into this stuff is Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism by Chogyam Trungpa. It's a very valuable book about Tibetan Buddhist approach to a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And he's got a real unique teaching style, very controversial and intense and uh, aggressive and hilarious. What happens, and I think the main way, the only real way to learn anything, to have any real wisdom, is that, you know, there's information in the world, which is just like data out there. There's knowledge, which is whenever you can remember that data that's out there. So you read some lines out of a book, and okay, I can quote that. Well, that's just knowledge. That's not wisdom. But wisdom arises whenever the knowledge that you hold in your mind intersects with a moment of experience in your life, and that you need to use that knowledge to turn the key to open the lock on the path moving forward for your future advancement. By actually getting into the playing field, by getting in there, by getting your hands dirty and experiencing, experimenting with all of these different methods of teaching and your own mind and 
is the only real way. You know, it's like risk, risk it all, like risk being human. Don't be scared to fail and to take missteps, but really get out there and just try and listen to your own intuition. Listen to the messages coming up to your mind and the feeling tones that are coming and follow that intuition and watch what happens, right? And if you mess up, then that's fine. That's a part of being human, you know, and you will learn in that progress of experience. Just go live your experience, and that's really the only way that wisdom will arise is by understanding these ideas of self-awakening, but then going in and really living them in your life and learning from them. Learn by doing. As a mechanical engineering major, I calculated triple integrals, created 3D car models, read textbooks on the laws of thermodynamics, but put me in front of a broken car engine, and my knowledge about thermodynamics would be practically useless. What I'm saying is books can only take you so far. Actually applying that knowledge, gaining real world experience, that's what fosters understanding. That's what fosters wisdom. But enough with the philosophical advice. Let's not forget that Corey is an entrepreneur too. Never ever let your professional creativity falter, ever. Have everything be to the best of your ability. Exceed your own expectations without exception, always. Because if you are totally undeniable, that's it. You have to be undeniable as an entrepreneur. Because what happens is that you do one project and when you are undeniable in your integrity and what you put into it and how it comes out, then the person that that you work with, you don't just meet their expectations, you exceed their expectations. And what that happens is that leaves a real deep imprint on their mind and in your relationship with them and in your craft. And so the next time, whenever they have a friend that mentions, hey, if this is in my example, they go, man, I just got this album I'm working on. And they'll say, I need someone to master it. They'll go, oh, man, I got this. This guy blew my mind. Like, I didn't know my record could sound so good. You should try him. And then they come to me and I would work with them again, being undeniable. And then they'll go, this guy blew my mind. And it just creates this web. And that was what I did. And that's how it all continued to grow. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges is the stress of your income because you want to be able to put all that mental real estate and all that energy into your craft and your profession. But if you start seeing in the future where perhaps you're going to be short on money or things are going to be tight, you naturally have a biological response to clench up, to start worrying and feeling anxiety about that. You can start really getting into a bad place. So any way that you can stave off that fear of the unknown and just stay in a steady place of kind of confidence and belief is really an important way to help your entrepreneurship thrive. Fear. It's our body's natural survival instinct, a response to stress. And often we let it govern our lives. We make decisions in reaction to fear. Fear of failure, fear of heights, fear of the unknown. But like Corey said, entrepreneurship is about overriding these innate fears. And in order to do that, we need introspection. Introspection comes in many forms. And for Corey, it was meditation. Through meditation, he was able to conquer his anxiety, relax his brain, so that he could focus his energies on productivity. But so many of us battle stress on a daily basis. And eventually, when it builds up, we crumble under the pressure. So I think what we can learn from Corey is mindfulness. 
We can observe our thoughts and not let them become us. If we are mindful, we can remember that even when your day is stacked back to back with Zoom meetings or rush hour traffic jams, you can still create peace. Peace within your mind. So relax, reflect, recharge, then conquer your fears and become the entrepreneur, the person you've always wanted to be. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing lead is Adrian Tapia, with the support from Joseph Cho, Eli Lauren, Matt Fernandez, Demir Gold, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, and Shannon O'Halloran. Our script writing team lead is Joyce Mock, with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lin, Gemma Brandwolf, Elizabeth Bowen, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lin, with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Alice Yao, Ankita Numbiar, and Jamil Swayze. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu, with support from Phoebe Sajor, Tiffany Dane, Rick Liu, Kayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, and James Barton. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.